0: Romans chapter 2, please. Romans chapter 2, and we'll continue where we left off last week. We'll start today in verse 17. Romans chapter 2, verse 17. Romans two seventeen. Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know His will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, Do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God." Father God, thank you for your word. I pray today you'll help us, speak to us, fill me with your spirit, Lord. I need you today. And I pray that you'll guide and direct and uh, help us to know exactly what you would have for us today. Lord, here was a privileged group of people, is a privileged group of people, but so too are we. And so I pray that we learn about the perils of privilege. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the first three chapters of Romans, Paul has been making a very methodical Uh, uh, attempt to discuss one particular theme. And I hope that theme has been coming out. I don't know if it has, but I hope it has. That theme is the universal need of mankind for the Savior. And hopefully we're beginning to see that as we work through his argument. You know, if you're the kind of person who believes you don't need the Savior, and there are those kinds of people out there, I have someone that I talk to quite often who has actually said that to me when I've talked to uh, him about his need for the Lord. He has said to me, I just don't feel lost. I just don't think I need a Savior. He just can't get his brain around that. And if perhaps there's someone here today, it's possible, who has that same type of thinking, the first three chapters of Romans were written for you. Because that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. The universal need of all mankind for the Savior. Hopefully, as we read through these chapters, we come to understand that there is no people, no class, no organization no level of privilege or lack thereof. No level of knowledge, no ignorance, nothing that uh, does away with our need for a Savior. Nothing. The Apostle Paul is clear here that all are in need of salvation. And eventually we're going to get to Romans 3.23, which is kind of the culminating verse. We may get there in a week or two uh, in this section. And we quote this verse all the time. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And uh, we just kind of pluck it out of there. But it's his, the top of his argument here as he's building up to it. And so, let's review just a little bit about what we've seen so far. In chapter 1, the apostle made the case that even those who are in far-off lands, even those who have never heard, are without excuse and in need of a Savior. Even those who have no knowledge, they're not privileged like we are to know that Christ died on the cross of Calvary for their sins and for mine. They don't, they don't know about that. They've never heard that story. But even so, they are without excuse, Paul says, and in need of a Savior. Uh, condemned before a holy God. He said the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against them, and they know about these things. At least they know enough. Uh, they're informed by conscience. They're informed by nature. Natural revelation, he talks about. and I, I won't beat that dead horse again. We've talked about it enough. You can go back and look at it if you want to. But he's talking there about a valid class or grouping of people, those who don't have the level of knowledge and the privilege that we have. Then he gets into chapter 2. And uh, we see that his argument progresses beyond those. It progresses to a group of people who have some knowledge. They do know. A type of people with maybe some moral underpinnings, maybe some understanding, some knowledge of God. That's who we talked about the last time. And maybe uh, these are the type of people who might be kind of like us, leaning toward us, people who do know. And uh, in that chapter, he also makes the point that these people are without excuse. They have heard. But they've not responded, and so they are also without excuse. They are also in need of a Savior. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you're the kind of person who believes and thinks, I've got tomorrow. I can wait. I don't have to deal with this today. We hear that all the time. You probably have heard other people say that. I'll, I'll think about that. And I think one of the things Paul teases, teaches us here in chapter 2, at least in the first part of chapter 2, is that you don't have all the time in the world. As a matter of fact, every moment that you wait, you're storing up wrath, uh, which is making it even less likely that uh, uh, you're going to find the Lord. So we just don't have any knowledge of what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't have any knowledge that we're going to wake up tomorrow uh, just because we're going to bed tonight. We may wake up in the fires of hell tomorrow. We may wake up in the arms of Jesus tomorrow. We don't know. And Paul said it's very, very dangerous to put that off. Storing up wrath. We talked about that, and I won't, I won't beat that one either. But now we come to the second half of chapter 2, and now we see that he's getting even more specific. So he's talked about people who don't know, and then he's talked about people who have some knowledge. Now he's going to talk in verses 17 and following about the most privileged group of people on the face of the earth, and that's the Jewish people. He's going to talk about people who have great privileges and great responsibilities, and he's going to say to them, You, the most privileged people, the ones who know the most are in in, in peril. You are also without excuse. And you also are in need of a Savior. No one is without. All have sinned. And so I want us to look today at what he has to say about the Jewish people. He's specifically talking about them here. And everything he says here has one interpretation, and that's it applies to them. But we also can apply it to ourselves. And I think as we read this, we're going to see the, the privileges that they had are very, very much like the privileges that we have today. And, uh, you know, perhaps sometimes we think that we're safe because we have the Bible. Sometimes perhaps we think that we're safe because we go to church, because we have some knowledge of the things of God or the plan of salvation, because we know God's will, because we've been preached that and taught. And in not just a cursory fashion, I would hope that in a church like this, we actually have some pretty good knowledge of the Word of God, that we're reading it, that we're studying it. And so we could look at that and we could say, you know what, we're a privileged people. And we're okay because of that. And yet Paul says that's not the case. That's not the case. And so let's look at two different things here today. First of all, a privileged people. And secondly, the peril of privilege. So first of all, verses 17 through 20, let's talk about a privileged people. Notice, indeed, you are called a Jew. You rest on the law, make your boast in God and know His will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Notice how he describes these Jewish people. Every word in there, every phrase in there, is describing a people who consider themselves extremely privileged and extremely safe. Because of that privilege. Safe because of things that are true of them and not true of other people that they see around them. Look at some of the things he said. He said, indeed, you were called a Jew. These were a people and are a people, even today, who believe themselves privileged by birth. The very fact that they are in this group, that they can call themselves a Jew, that they can call themselves a child of Abraham, a member of the chosen people, well, that association alone renders them safe. You are called a Jew. It's enough for them to believe they're secure. I am okay because I am a Jew. That's what he's saying is their mindset. You call yourselves a Jew makes me think of the words of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was baptizing one time along the river Jordan, and the Pharisees came to him. And he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, and he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as your father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. We don't have any need of baptism, John. Why, we have Abraham as our father. We are part of this privileged class. We are Jews. We don't need that. And John's answer was, it's not enough. It doesn't negate your need for repentance. It doesn't. It's not enough to say I'm a Jew. It doesn't negate your need for a Savior. You have just the same need as everybody else. You know, we call ourselves Christians. We use that word. We call ourselves that. Many do so simply because that's the environment in which they've been raised. The culture in which they've grown up. And they think that just because they can say, I am a Christian, I am in that class, that somehow just the name itself has some, I don't know, some saving, some saving uh, grace to it. I don't know. You know. The fact is, if you talk to people in this country, the vast majority of people in this country, unless they've been brainwashed into some other religion like Buddhism or, or uh, uh, Islam or Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or something like that, that's clearly a false religion. Unless they've been taught in something like that. The vast majority of people in this country who really don't know what they believe will call themselves Christian. And they'll think that they're okay with God because of it. And Paul is saying here, no, that's not enough. It does not negate the fact that you need a Savior. He says you rest on the law. You rest on the law. There can be no doubt that God's greatest blessing to the Jewish people is the fact he entrusted them with the Word of God. Matter of fact, we're going to get over here to uh, chapter three a little bit. And after Paul is done here inflating all of the pride of the Jews in this particular passage uh, in chapter three in verses one and two, he's going to anticipate their next question. After he's got done saying it's not good enough for you to call yourself a Jew, then they're going to they're going to basically be asking the question. Uh, well, then what good is it to be a Jew? What's the advantage? And in chapter three, if you look there in verse number two, he's going to say much in every way, chiefly. Unto them were committed the oracles of God. The fact that God gave the word of God to the Jews is not a trivial thing. It's an important thing. It's a big thing. They rest on the law. He says it is their highest honor, their greatest privilege, that they were blessed with the word of God. But the fact that they simply possessed it does not give them anything. The fact that they simply have the Bible, they had the law, they had the word, that didn't negate their need for a savior. I think sometimes we think the same thing. I think sometimes we think that uh, because we have the Bible, that's enough. I have a lot of Bibles. Does that mean I'm okay with God? How many Bibles do you think I own? Who wants to throw out a number? How many, how many think I own more than a hundred Bibles? How many think I own more than a thousand Bibles? You know, I found to my amazement that I own more than a thousand Bibles. Do you know why? Because I have on this iPad right here a little app called the Bible app. How many of you have the Bible app on your iPad? I looked at it. It says that I own 1,094 different versions of the Bible in 780 languages. That's amazing. If just simply owning copies of Scripture somehow imparts grace to me, good night, I'm in good shape. There's 42 versions just in English on there. And I have a stinking pretty good collection at home of real Bibles, of bound Bibles. But that's, Paul says, no, you rest on the law. The fact you possess it doesn't do away with you need to live it. Simply having the Bible doesn't save. That was the Jewish mindset. God chose us. We have the law. Something no other people were given like we were. And Paul said, it's not enough. It's not enough. You make your boast in God, he said. And it's the same mindset restated. We are Jews. We have God's Word. We know about God. You know His will. And not only do we know about God, we know what He wants of us. We could say that, couldn't we? We could say the same thing. We read the Bible. We've got the Bible. We know what God wants. We know His expectations. We know His demands. And yet, just as we learned when we studied James, knowing what God wants is not sufficient. He judges us based on whether we do what He wants. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. James 4.17 You approve the things that are excellent. The Jews' knowledge of God equipped him to know good from evil, right from wrong, better from best, moral from immoral. His knowledge gave him the advantage of being able to judge rightly between things and choose the things that were pleasing to God and those that were not. He said that you're instructed out of the law. These privileged people not only had the law, they not only knew the law, they not only knew what the law contained, but they had an elaborate structure in place for teaching of that law. They went to synagogue. Sound like us? We go to church. They had rabbis who devoted their lives to teaching the Word of God, the law to the people. And so the Jew would say to Paul, we go to church, we listen to the Bible taught, and Paul would say, such is not enough. It does not negate your need for the Savior. It's clear, isn't it, as we work down through this thing, that these very same things which are so specifically being said about the Jewish people also apply to us. We can see how these things would apply. He says, you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor, of the foolish a teacher of babes. Why, we not only know the Bible, Paul, we not only have the Bible taught to us, we not only listen to our rabbis, but we even teach the Bible. Why, we hold Bible studies in our homes. We teach Sunday school. We are teachers of God's truth. My mind goes to the words of the Lord in Matthew chapter 7, when he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons, your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lord, haven't we, haven't we taught? Haven't we taught your word? Haven't we preached? It's not enough. Jesus was making the same point there that Paul's making here. It's not enough to know about him. It's not enough to call him a Lord. It's not enough to preach and teach others about him. He said you have the form of knowledge and truth in the law. And here Paul is ending this list of privileges the same way he started out. Maybe summing them up. I don't know. He's saying you possess knowledge. You possess truth. They were a privileged group of people, weren't they? Maybe the most privileged people that have ever lived on earth. And they considered and consider themselves safe because of that privilege. And I think many of us in our day fall into the same trap. We consider ourselves okay. We consider ourselves we don't, we don't need anything from God because we possess the Bible. We read the Bible. We know the Bible. We attend a Bible-believing church. We listen to the preaching of the Word of God, and we think ourselves safe. Paul's saying here that's not enough. And he moves on here, and he talks a little bit about the people in peril. So the privileged people, and now number two, a people in peril. Look at verse 21. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? And so in the second part of this text, Paul is here describing the fact that in spite of their having all that privilege, in spite of all those proud statements that they said, all that knowledge, they they don't live up to that privilege, even though they know God's will about certain things, they don't do it. We're going to see this in a much more personal way when we get to Romans chapter 7, because in Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about this exact same thing, but he talks about it from his own experience, from his own heart. Let me just read you a little bit of that now, and we'll save more of it for later, but Paul speaking about himself he says we know that the law is spiritual but I am carnal sold under sin what I am doing I do not understand for what I will to do that I do not practice but what I hate that I do I find then a law that evil is present with me the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And so here he's speaking in general terms about the Jewish people in general. In Romans chapter 7, he says, it's true of me. The same thing is true of me. I am a privileged person. I have all this knowledge and I can't live according to it. I can't even do the things that I know. His point in both places is the impotence of even the privileged, unable, unable to live up to the privilege. The fact that they know and do not do puts them in a worse position than the other ones that we've talked about in chapter 1 in the early part of chapter 2. You see yourself in any of that? Boy, I sure see myself in it. You see yourself in it. Even though I know the truth, teach the truth, I simply cannot always live up to the truth. I have been enamored lately with a uh, a musician. Her name is Mariah Peters. And I picked up one of her albums that is just I've just been playing over and over and over and over and over. If you hear a motorcycle go roaring by with a stereo blasting, it'll probably be Mariah Peters on there. But... Anyway, this album just speaks to some of the things that I'm going through in my life right now. But there's one song on that album that I was listening to the other day. I thought, good night. That came right out of this. It came right out of this chapter. And the song's called Don't Want to Live for Me. Let me Let me just read a couple of the verses of it, or a couple of lines from it. She says, another day, come and gone. I do what I hate to do. A little right, a little wrong. It's true. Another choice, another fall. I tell myself to stop. But on my own, it's a war, and I've lost. Why do I say one thing and then do the opposite? I don't want to stay this way. See, that's what Paul's talking about. The peril of the privileged. Why do I say one thing and then do the opposite? Why do we do that? Why did Jews do that? Why did Paul do that in Romans chapter 7? There was a deacon that I knew in the Wheelersburg Baptist Church when we attended down there. And I used to love to listen to this guy pray. He always started his prayers the same way. Every single time he would say, Dear Lord, I confess there is nothing good in me. See, that's it. Even the most privileged, privileged of people are still sinners in need of a Savior. Privilege is not enough. We need Jesus. We need a Savior. And so let's review it again. There are people who haven't even heard the gospel, says Paul. That's chapter 1. And yet they are guilty before God because they know enough to stand condemned before Him. There are people who have some knowledge of God. Chapter 2. And yet they don't act on it. They put it off. They put it off. They are also without excuse. And their slowness to respond, Paul said, is storing up wrath against them. Perhaps Paul's Jewish readers, as they listened to those, those first examples, were inwardly thankful as they read those words. Whew. That's not us. We're certainly not that group in chapter 1. We're certainly not that group in chapter 2. I'm a Jew. Praise the Lord. I know these things. And just as this person is beginning to feel secure in his privileged position as a Jew, Paul sticks that balloon with a pen and deflates it. It's not enough. Your privilege is not enough. I want to close with two applications from this, just very briefly, and uh, and then I'll be done. One of the applications is drawn from what's in the text, the other from what's not in the text. First of all, what's in the text. I want you to notice one last uh, verse that we haven't talked about yet, which reminds us that this hypocrisy Paul's describing here, and it is hypocrisy, isn't it? Hypocrisy that says, I'm privileged, I know all this stuff, but I, I don't live it. That's the whole point. This hypocrisy has far-reaching effects. Clearly, it mostly affects us. No doubt about it. When one is blinded to privilege to the point of missing out on salvation, he or she is the one who's most affected. But not the only one. Others see it. Others are affected by it. Look at verse 24. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. It's not a terrible verse. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. There's a lot of sad verses in the Bible. If you read your Bible and you should, you're going to come across a lot of verses that will just make you sad. Jeremiah 8.20 always makes me sad. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Peter's words in Luke chapter 22 always make me sad. He denied him, saying, woman, I do not know him. The words in Matthew chapter 27 always make me sad. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said to him, Let him be crucified. More in Matthew 27, All the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. The words in Genesis chapter 6, I don't know how they don't make you sad. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. He is grieved in his heart. There are many sad verses in the Bible. We could think of some others, but, but this, this verse 24 certainly hovers near the top of that list. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The fact that you are so privileged and that you do not live up to that privilege, the fact that you are therefore a hypocrite, imperils not only you. Not only your own salvation, but others as well. There are few things I fear more as a pastor than that, than the name of God being blasphemed because of me. And we all ought to fear it as believers. It's a sad verse. We all ought to pray for help avoiding such influence. Well, there's one other application, and this is not in the text. And it's the same application I've made at the end of every one of these messages, because the fact is, the answer, the solution is not provided yet. And so we need to to remind ourselves that that this problem has a solution, and it is yet to come. As we've seen throughout this whole section on Paul's discussion of this, he's, he's heaping heavy stuff on us, there's no doubt about it. But his purpose in doing this is not to make us feel helpless. It is, however, to make us realize that there is no hope in us. Not hopeless, but there is no hope in us. The only hope is outside of us. The only hope is in the one who is our Savior, the one who died on the cross of Calvary for us. He hasn't made that point yet. And so we have to come back and keep making that application at the end and remind ourselves that he will get there. He will get there. Remember, I mentioned in Romans chapter seven that he had bemoaned the fact that he personally could not live up to what. Uh, his privileges were, what he knew to be true in the Bible. And he said, who should deliver me from the body of this death? I stopped reading in the middle of the verse because he goes on and he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the answer to this. And so, my friend, whoever you are, and whatever your background, and whatever your history, and whatever your family connections, and whatever your level of privilege or lack thereof, Paul's point in all of this is you need the Savior. And the Savior is there For you, you are lost, you are undone apart from him, but with him you have every opportunity. I long for the time we get to it because I'm getting tired of talking about the dark side. I'd like to talk about the good stuff, and so I have to throw it in here at the end. But we are going to get to that wonderful part in Romans where he says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation for whoever calls on the name of the Lord. Shall be saved. And so, if you have not done that, may I encourage you to do it today. Because the fact is, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your privilege. It doesn't matter any of that. Apart from Jesus Christ, you stand condemned. That's Paul's entire point in the first three chapters. Everybody needs to turn to Christ, it's your only hope. Flee to the cross. Christ will meet you there.